Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. months back, I gave myself or set an intention of practice. And some of our mindfulness practice on the eighth fold bath, we set these wise intentions towards equanimity, towards wisdom, towards deep practice. And something came up in me that I, I had wanted to set this intention and it was particularly around more difficulty. You notice how difficulties in life are invitations for retreats and practice. They're invitations, it's a different kind of monastery practice, but it definitely puts you or it can put you in a place to work more deeply and process more deeply. We like to say you don't have to always sign up for a retreat, just handle the next crisis, right? Or be with the next difficult thing. It's like a retreat. I noticed myself what I like to um, label a triangle of entanglement. Yeah, you know, this when lots of difficult things come together at once, it's easy to become entangled, caught up and tight become a walking anxiety or a walking tension, walking around in entangled and tight. And it's the normal things in life that happen. It just took a family member having chronic medical issues, um, work conflicts that come and go as work conflicts do. And for me, just turning on the news or radio and seeing a political atmosphere, climate issues that are against my personal values. And you may have one or none of those. So I decided to, uh, to help the triangle of entanglement to practice the triangle of awareness. And some of you have know what that is. If you've taken MBSR, MBCT, anybody know what the triangle of awareness is? Yeah. No, I don't want to tell it. You oh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of that kind of day. Do you get that feeling? It's just like, right? It's, it, we're almost in July, and it's like, I just want to like lay down on a lounge at the beach <laughs> or by a pool. Do you have that feeling? It's like that summer Okay, so what is the triangle of awareness? Is you're noticing and noting uh, your physical body sensations, your thoughts, the thoughts that arise, and your feelings and emotions. And you're noticing those three. Um, it's a practice that you can do off of your cushion, off of the meditation mat, in daily life. And. Uh, you don't have to do it 100% of the time. I don't know what percent of practicing human being can do it, but any little bit of that I noticed brought more ease, groundedness, strength, wisdom, resilience, less reactivity. It was really um, 
great again to see how well the practice works going through stressful or difficult multi-layered issues those times and so that was one thing I did the triangle of awareness very helpful and the second thing I did with it though is that self-compassion break it wasn't enough for me to be aware when we're going through difficulty and hard times stress and a challenge we have to charge up we have to pull up compassion for the stress and the difficulty we're under or the strong emotion it's not enough to feel the emotion for me there has to be a compassionate awareness responding a mother love you know, or we call it grandmother love mm-hmm. and that has to pervade awareness alone is not enough for me and I think most of us um, and the third thing I had uh, committed myself to doing was an all day once a month which is a lot but uh, reinforcing the practice coming back to the practice practice as a ground of being has added a real joy in my life and happiness can be described in the Buddhist path in a couple of ways. There are life conditions that make you very happy, which are wonderful, and we are always happy for you. (laughs) There's cultivating happiness with mindfulness, a practice that I love to do in the early morning, wake up and taste the coffee. I enjoy the color of my mug. It's a big deal in our house, (laughs) right? I look out at the garden the hummingbirds, the sound of the birds, the feeling of um, the wood floor or the rug, the quiet of the morning, looking at the sky. That's the way we're we're cultivating a sensory happiness and developing a gratitude just for being alive, being in the moment. And we could do that anywhere. We could take a happiness break walking outside and noticing nature or children or the sky it's a good thing to do it's good because it gets us out of the default network which is always noticing the problems and trying to solve them and making you solve them so this is a good antidote it's skillful but then there's a happiness that's not conditioned on things going well or your way the happiness that doesn't have conditions and that's also what we practice for the happiness that doesn't need things to go right a peace that doesn't need things to go right a quiet space inside that's happy not based on something outside of yourself very beautiful very beautiful very beautiful and for some of us we're also practicing to share that with other human beings who are suffering in some way it's not just for us it's for others it's a form of generosity so uh, I did keep my commitment and I did attend a retreat yesterday which I really enjoyed the teacher was Shinzen Young. Is anybody familiar with Shinzen's teachings? 
He's been around in LA for many, many, many years. I'll tell you a little bit about him. And then um, I'll share a little bit of what he said along these lines. And we'll practice a little, perhaps. So uh, he's in his 70s. He majored in Asian languages at UCLA. And then attained a PhD in Buddhist studies. And part of that PhD was to become a Japanese monk in Japan, which mm -hmm. he did. And he lived in a monastery at Mount Koya in Japan, um, a Zen monastery for three years. And he's known to be kind of a math and science geek. And so if you go on the website or you watch his YouTube and read, you can see a little bit of his affinity for precision and using math and science. And I think he does some neuroscience research mm. currently. But what he said was very interesting, uh, struck me yesterday. He said that um, in the Zendo, they of course, back in the day, had you sit in a full lotus posture. To meditate for an hour at a time or long periods of time. Has anybody ever sat in that lotus posture? It hurts. It's yeah. painful. Yeah, for Westerners, not for people, Easterners necessarily. And you sit for long, long periods of time like that. And he's brand new to the practice, even though he had studied this academically. And eventually, it took a lot of time. He began to notice that the mind chatter and the chatter about his body being in pain and his mind just yakky, 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 talky, talky, or the sleep and the aches. Like, in time, it began to settle. And there was um, a peace and a quiet and a stillness that arose. The mind got still. And he went and reported it to his senior teacher. So in... in um, Buddhist practice, there are two types of meditation. There, I, I want to say there are three, but there are two primary. And what he was doing was the samatha, samatha practice, or samatha practice, which is the concentration practice, where um, <clears throat> you're focusing on one item, one object. It's generally the breath. And you're riding that breath, you're bringing the mind on top of it to still the mind. And you don't allow your mind to wander off. And when that's done, um, you can perceive a deep calm that pervades your body and your mind. So who here practices a concentration practice? Who is a concentration? Yeah. So you have those moments when everything settles down, and we call that a state of tranquility. And um, if you're in that kind of concentration practice, you're emphasizing um, sometimes this rapture, or this peace, this joy, this beauty, and it doesn't have the thoughts and the perceptions are not in awareness. And there are a lot of meditative practices, transcendental meditation, some of the Hindu practices, the Zen practice, 
um, of going back, counting a red one, one. So what Shinzen said was um, his teacher encouraged him, which is unusual for teachers of that time, I think 70s or 80s, and said, what you're getting is a taste of the way things could be for you all the time with advanced practice or with mm. more practice. So he validated that experience. Mm. And the next thing that they had him do in the monastery is what he would call these mundane or boring tasks. There was a Zen garden with the gravel. Have you all seen the Zen garden? Yeah. Uh, right, and you rake it over and over again. He said, um, it looks more fun than it is. <laughs> it was so boring. And he began to rebel. And the thought process in his mind was that, oh my God, I came over here all these thousands of miles away. I'm sitting here, I'm not working, and I have a PhD, and I'm raking pebbles for hours at a time. Right? Or I'm washing dishes. And finally, you know, and he brought this, his annoyance to the teacher, and he actually called it, you know, shit work, right? Yeah. And we all have this boring, mundane work that we do in our lives. And what he finally grasped is that um, you want to get that, or there's a hope as a meditator, that you can take that concentrated peace that you're feeling in the... Uh, concentration practice or shamatha practice, right? And there would be a hope that it could follow you off the cushion into your life and when you're doing these small mundane things you can stay in concentration. Your mind could be relatively still and you could still be anchored in the movement or the sensory task or the breath and the mind could be still. And I know in my ashram life, we did a lot of that. A lot of that. We stood in the kitchen and chopped for hours. We weren't just chopping the vegetables. We were practicing standing and moving, but maintaining a stillness of the mind. I did that one summer, I vacuumed endlessly the ashram floors. Not just vacuuming, maintaining stillness of mind. And then I went outdoors to the garden and dug ditches and pulled out weeds. Same way, maintaining stillness of mind. And this is something that we can all do in daily life. And practice is take that activity off the cushion, that concentrated state. So, uh, some of us, if you practice long enough in TM and other concentrated kinds of meditation, you can generate that state. The problem is the state is not permanent. It's impermanent, and it will leave based on the conditions. And a lot of great deep meditators crave that deep state on the cushion, and they practice just for that state. I have <clears throat> had that desire myself. So the second kind of meditation 
would be what we call vipassana, which is insight meditation, where um, you're meditating to cut through the illusion and the delusion in the mind and becoming more aware of the truth and reality of your present moment. Through the practice, you're increasing your awareness of the inner workings of reality, moment by moment. And it's a direct and gradual uh, practice. And what we're directed to, what we were doing in our meditation earlier at the end, is a momentary examining aspects of existence. Um, and we're noticing more and more of what you're aware of. So it's attentive listening, it's careful seeing, listening to your thoughts without getting caught up. So you're landing in the moment more present with where you are and the reality of where you are. And that gives you the opportunity to see clearly. It also helps you untangle the knot of tension, stress, overwhelm, fatigue, you know how you have that overwhelm, there's like so many things to do, so many things are coming. It helps you pare down awareness just in this moment, this small piece, and things don't become so overwhelming because you can be present to just this. And being present to just this helps land us in equanimity naturally. You have more balance. You're not thrown off by the next thing when you know it and you're aware of it and when it's known. And so this is why we also practice here vipassana or this momentary knowing, knowing from moment to moment. And when we're practicing like that, we begin to see the truth of our lives, the uh, impermanence of it, the stress that we go through and the kinds of difficulties the truth of that, and who we take ourselves to be, essentially. So, several years ago, uh, before I studied Buddhism, I was practicing with Advaita teachers, and uh, their focus is being in the moment, just landing in the moment, don't meditate, don't practice. But I was meditating in a concentration practice, and we were lucky enough to live like a half a mile off the beach, I want to say. And so I could meditate in the morning, drop the kids off, and do walking on the beach. And I didn't know then that you would call it mindful walking. But what would happen is that I would be naturally paying attention to the feeling of the sand hearing the waves, the sound of the waves, smelling the air, right? The birds, just the wind, the things. It's easy to be mindful at the beach, at least for me, right? It's easy to be in the moment in your body. It's very pleasant. And I would feel that shamatha practice rise up. The same stillness from the cushion was on the beach. And then I'd get off the beach and the whole thing was over. <laughs> so I asked this Advaita teacher, uh, I said, well, you know, I can 
feel and sense present moment experience on the ocean and at the beach. And I can't feel it. It's not staying in life. Shopping, cooking, cleaning, working, talking, whatever. It's just not there. It's not there. And he looked at me and he said, well, why don't you just get a hut on the beach? <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. Thank you. Yeah, I love that moment. Right? So, uh, so this is where Buddhism came into my life, accidentally. I was looking for a place to meditate with people where I could park the car. And uh, it was a good time to get away from the kids. And it wasn't too far. That was my criteria. I really didn't care what form of meditation it was, really. Like, I had no, I didn't care whether it was Buddhism, Sufi, Hindu, anything you name it. Just could I park the car, get there, and the kids okay, right? Good time for the kids. And it happened to be a Buddhist meditation and I started to slowly learn about this noting practice that we do which I gave you some instruction on and um, this you know the insight practice that pierces your reality and for several years I was just annoyed by that you know just give me that deep state let's talk about joy and bliss and forget about noting and slowly slowly it really dawned on me that this was such a valuable practice. And here we are many years later, I can see um, the depth and beauty of sticking with a practice like that. And this is um, a quote that from Shinzen. He said that he um, was in a sweat lodge with um, a Lakota practitioner by the name of Lisa Wallapa, I think her name is, I may not say it correctly. And she said to him, I know this path is hard. I know this path is hard. But there is something harder than this path. What's harder than this path is not having a path. <laughs> So, we practice, and sometimes it's hard, right? But we practice to practice for life practice, right? To walk through our lives with greater wisdom and strength, less reactivity, awareness, love, compassion, we're cultivating these beautiful states of being. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what Shinzen Yang uh, taught. And you can certainly go on the websites. He's got so much material. It is amazing how much he's got on there. The noting practice that he's developed after like 50 years of teaching, he calls see, hear, and feel practice. A way to practice continually when you're not on the cushion. You can certainly do this on the cushion in stillness, but you can practice in motion. And I'll give you a little bit of a brief description 
and uh, you can play with it and take it with you in your daily practice. And one of the things he recommended, which I thought was great, how many people drive? <laughs> it's LA, right? This is something you could practice. You can actually have a Vipassana practice driving. It's great. So you would make this mental note when you um, notice what's arising. The mental note is calm, detached, quiet. It has a sweetness to it, a kindness, because you want to generate compassion. I have so much compassion, don't you? For we live in this Western world, we have uh, so much abundance compared to many other places in the world. But we have a mind that's challenged by so much stimulation. Just this alone is so overstimulating. And that's one small piece. We have, it's very task oriented. And I think a lot of our fear and anxiety channels are activated because it's not a, a society that has maybe, let's say, real security. Things are shifting, you know, the economic, financial, family. There's so much stress. So enormous compassion just for getting up every day and getting dressed, brushing your teeth. It's like a big deal, right? So we want to note and know with a compassionate, soft voice. Seeing are what you see physically. Seeing, you can note seeing. Um, the mental images that you have in your mind when you're imagining, fantasizing, projecting. Like right now, I could see um, some of the pieces of our Hawaii vacation. I could just say, I don't even have to say Hawaii, and I could see that ocean and the hotel and the sand, right? Um, sometimes, if you're doing that note meditating, the field is clear, or there's just color there, or there's space, right? So you could also note seeing when seeing becomes um, hearing or feeling. Sometimes I see, let's say, Kate, and then I hear myself say, how are those little babies? And then I, they feel, oh, they must be so cute, right? So you could see when seeing just leaves and it becomes some other thing, right? It's your acuity at that, of seeing that. So that would be seeing, and you could certainly do that driving. Um, I've practiced that and I, on my way to work where I go the same route all the time, and I notice how many things I never see <laughs> day after day. It's amazing. Right? And then uh, hearing is the physical sounds that you hear outside of you, your mental talk and chatter that's going on inside, and what we do is bring interest, get fascinated. When I note that mental talk, I'm always really surprised how many people I'm talking to in my head mm. that maybe I'll never talk to, like the stories that I'm doing, you know, and how much sometimes I'm propping up myself a little in those conversations. So um, sometimes you're noticing the absence of mental talk. Uh, sometimes you're just hearing the sound of silence like a flow, or you're really just hearing the silence and knowing that.
a very gentle, easy way to be present. And uh, so hearing, and you just note, it's a hearing, hearing, hearing. And then there's feeling, which is your physical body, the sensations in your body that could be tingling, flow, density, achiness, tightness. Um, the sensations inside your body, he adds emotions there. So those of us who are highly feeling sensitive people, um, I'm tracking that all the time. You know, sad, worried, lonely, angry, you know, whatever, um, joyful, happy, you know, all of those, how that feels internally. And the sense of spaciousness of your body, and it does include touch, taste, and smell. The feeling, feeling, feeling. And he says when we're practicing like that, for it could be we're practicing with a full intention or it's just in the background. It's all worthy and worthwhile. Even a light touch in the background because what we're cultivating is um, a form of concentration, of knowing in the moment what's happening, not being lost. Right? So we're cultivating a form of concentration we're getting clarity where we didn't necessarily have it. You're getting clearer. You're knowing, right? And most importantly to me, when we're doing this kind of noting, you have equanimity arising and balance because there's a stepping back to know it. You're not merged with what's happening. You're stepping back to know it. So you're developing this equanimity of mind a little more balance to see it. You're developing a kind of inner balance. And most importantly, what's happening if you're doing this practice, and again, this is one way to practice. There are many ways to practice Vipassana. It's amazing. Many, many ways. This is one. Um, what he said was, uh, it's a good way of not, of noticing if you're suppressing something, shutting it down. Right? Uh, and I had that moment with Casey on the phone when he called. He got, I got one call about his mom being ill. And then I got a second call that said, I see you, I see you. And I noticed right away, I shut down. I suppressed it out of worry or fear or sadness, whatever it was, empathy. You know, I just felt everything, you know. But it's, it's helpful to know when we're shutting down or suppressing something, right? We don't want to walk around all shut down. So that knowing is quite helpful. Another way that it helps is just when you're pulled away by the senses and you're grasping, you're out of your body. Uh, one, one of my friends was telling me, and I really say this with no judgment, you know, he was with his wife and they were um, bicycling on the beach and he saw a very gorgeous person in a bikini, right? And he said he almost crashed his bike. <laughs> he so lost it, like this beautiful, you know, young woman before him. And his wife was like looking at him like, really? <laughs> 
really. But he said I was lost in my sense world. It just is a natural thing. But but there's some right to not get so pulled away in your senses. Right? To have that opportunity to practice so you're not lost in your senses. I tend to be lost in my senses in those cupcake stores. That's why I don't go in there. You know, you start, I go in and you see the rows of the different, and I'm lost in my senses. Oh, what is that buttercream, caramel, drizzle thing, you know? Right. So, um, he's also saying when you can name it, you're arriving in that moment here. You're giving yourself an invitation just to be here. And very often in our lives, and I said this before, we're feeling like chaos, flooding, overwhelm, you know, that oh, right. natural. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you felt this at work in a clinic, right? How many times in a day there's so many things to do in one day, right? And you get that. You're just like, <laughs> what do I do now? You know, and that overwhelm comes in. But you can land in the moment and take that piece of it. You can just be there with that piece of it. So I think I've... Um, so, this may be a practice that you would like to try. Making it in your driving time or in your sitting practice or a small task, maybe a task that you previously considered boring or tedious. And so we have a couple of minutes, and I think small group, you know, two, three people. Yes, Kate? Can I ask a question? Yes. Was there any um, mention of noting as a bit of a stepping stone type of practice? I feel like I've heard it referred to in the same way that like counting breaths is. It may be the way that you start to learn how to become aware of your breath. And labeling, noting may be a way to start to become aware of your body and your thoughts and your feelings arising, but then at some point you sort of transcend the actual mental action of noting. Was that any part of it? Yes. So I think it was maybe 80s Mayahasi Sayadaw brought the noting practice. Do you remember when anybody? Margaret, do you know? It was 80s. Seems close. Yeah. Uh, where we went through in American Buddhist practice, contemporary practice, they really emphasize noting. A lot of the walking meditation was lifting, placing, feeling, you know, everything. Your, your hand moving. I remember one of the instructions on a retreat um, from Victor is if you're getting up to go to the bathroom, see your hand going lifting, placing on the knob of the door, opening, pushing, pulling, walking. You know, they were really emphasizing that as a way to strengthen, as you're saying, that awareness of where you were in the moment. Yeah. So noting, you can use the words and say the words like that. Or you just know it because you're there without the word, right? And this was supposed to be a way to get us to do it without the word, just knowing, which is another form of present moment experience, this knowing, right? So anybody else have a question about it? Yes. So when I was noting when we were going through a meditation, I also sort of noticed how that practice removed me one step from judgment, sort of, and I was wondering if that was 
part of the practice too. Like just when you're thinking, I mean, especially when I'm meditating, sometimes I'm like, shut up, shut up, shut up. So like, <laughs> like, but noting, like, like I'm hearing, like in my mind, it helps me. It was like my awareness was meeting my like ego, being like, this is what it is. Beautiful. That's great. That's a good insight. It's a good insight. Thank you. It's a good question. Good question here. So what happened for me yesterday, interestingly enough, in the morning, um, I was following his instruction for sitting and walking. And there began to be a little super ego meditator saying, uh, good, bad, where'd you go? What are you doing? You know, just evaluating me. And it was like horrible. I was just, it, was, it became like a pain in my neck, you know, literally. Like, I was just getting an evaluative superego telling me whether I was doing this good or bad, so I um, pulled over one of the senior teachers who was nice enough to talk to me, and I explained that this was happening, that this critic was in there judging my performance. <laughs> and I got a very simple um, explanation is, um, just lightly note hearing. Keeps, when that part comes up evaluating you, just hearing, hearing, hearing. And so I started to do that for the rest of the day, and it completely quieted down. Mm -hmm. It was just hearing. Oh, okay, hearing. Next, you know, hearing, hearing. So yeah, it can take away that superego attack, because what is arising becomes part of your meditation. And if it's a critical attack on you, well, it's hearing. You know, or your voice telling you, the inner voice. And he did give a quote um, from Maizumi Roshi, and I can't remember it at this moment, but it was about the inner critic, that enlightenment is when you no longer have the voice about enlightenment. And so, right, he was saying when that evaluative part that comes in and keeps evaluating you disappears, we're practicing for that. You know, we're practicing for that releasing of that moment. Mm. Yeah. What's that? Not adding on to it. Mm -hmm. the way you, you explained it like judging the judger. <laughs> it's like, yeah. just, you, yeah, just note it. Any other questions? Oh, I have a question yes. about that. So, I don't know if I'm asking this right, but if when we're like, like the judging, thing when you're looking at it and it's becoming a pain in your neck and you're not you're not releasing it or you know hearing saying hearing hearing so it becomes more of an object rather than subjective what are are we like is it that we believe that stuff is real I mean I'm just wondering what's going on that it's making it a pain in the neck or it's making us feel like it's real good question another good question so that's got a lot of layers to it, but sometimes you're noting or you're seeing it with awareness. It could be the judge, the critic, or a very strong emotion. Uh, and you're aware of it, you're noting it, but it's not going anywhere. Have you had that happen? It's just not moving, right? <laughs> the key there is to stay with it with compassion and kindness and just watch it. Here you're seeing the not-self phenomenon. It will go when it's ready to go, and you don't have much to say about it. Mm -hmm. 
right? You're just going to watch it till it goes. And eventually it goes. Yeah. Eventually it goes. Might have kept you up a few nights, but even, right? But eventually it goes. So you're using compassion and loving kindness to yourself with your awareness, and you're just watching it, right? Sometimes, though, uh, right, and you're saying it's, uh, the question was, is it was literally a pain in my neck. I could feel my, the voice talk in my neck going, <laughs> you know, that crick, right? Um, it's a practice just to know it is insight. That's a big insight. Mind said this, and my body did this. That's big, people. Half of uh, visits to the doctor, right? If you knew that really well, what is your mind generating and how your body holds it, you wouldn't have, you'd have less co-pays at your doctor, right? You know what I mean? If you could really know that, that's a good, that's an important awareness, right? That, that we got that. Sometimes it, you also, with the stronger stuff, I'm a true believer that mindfulness is not a band-aid for everything. Sometimes you have to get a friend or a helper or talk things out or do something or get support or you know talk to a meditation teacher. Like Sometimes we can't pierce everything with insight and awareness. I like to emphasize that because I think when we talk about mindfulness these days it's like this panacea for everything mm -hmm. and it's not sometimes you have to see a therapist go to a doctor get a massage or take a day and distract yourself and release your stress you know it's mindfulness is one tool of many right? so yeah but if it doesn't go just watch it it's great to just watch it it's a lot of insight comes from that Anybody else? Question? Experience? Yeah. Well, I fell off recently, and I just used that. Um, I was in a group, and I was doing the closing prayer, and, you know, I closed my eyes. We were all holding hands, and I'm just really feeling love, and I'm saying, okay, feel the hands next to you, and now send the energy around the room. And then uh, a man who is very impulsive said, which way do we send the energy? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so inside, I, I, I am a mindfulness person, but what jumped out of my mouth was, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I calmed myself and <laughs> finished the prayer, which was nice, and went over to him. I thought he was making a joke, but he's really into energy. And he thought, Linda, you have to put it a direction. So I just said, I'm sorry, just tell me afterwards. But I had that why did I do that? So I really was aware that I was very critical of self, and that I thought, oh my God, what do people think of me? There's a whole lot of judgment that came up, but I was so aware of it, and um, <clears throat> that's all. <laughs> this is, um, I know that in the Tibetan traditions, they focus on Tara, and green Tara, that compassion energy of the mother, yeah. the loving energy of the mother. 
I feel like um, the mindfulness needs to be saturated with that loving Tara green energy of compassion for uh, how complicated we are and that we are just not going to be saints on this and uh, it's a long path, it's a long trajectory and even I was talking to someone who had studied with Shinzen Young for 25-30 years and her comment was, um, is he getting better or am I getting better? <laughs> we don't even know. But if you stay on the path, right, and you um, allow yourself to evolve without this harsh criticism and you set your intention mindfully with awareness and compassion over years, there are shifts and changes. But it's not just sudden awakening for us. It's really a slow ride. Like the 12-step programs, they got it right, right? When they said, we'll trudge on the path. How do we say it? I'll see you on the path. We'll trudge together. Mm -hmm. So we're doing that here. Hey, we are trudging together. <laughs> right? We're trudging. So bring in that green compassion, that beautiful compassionate energy of um, the part of us that feels like we have to get it right all the time. What a burden. Mm -hmm. What a burden. What a burden to carry, to get it right all the time. Mm -hmm. And mindfulness, you know, it can't become like a designer bag. You know, those designer bags that you throw over your shoulder and you walk around and you've know, got this bag. Right. It's called mindfulness. <laughs> Very cool. It's better than your bag. <laughs> so many more pockets. <laughs> the phrase is trudge on the road of happy destiny. Beautiful. And, and the word trudge at the time that it was written means deliberate. 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 Be on the road of happy destiny through on purpose, like you were saying. Yeah. On purpose. Deliberate. Yes. I just was thinking a lot about your discussion of the feeling, pleasure, and, and the cupcake thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought mindfulness was to enable you to be lost in the cupcake. <laughs> you mean... In the pleasure of the cupcake. In the pleasure of the cupcake. Uh, it, it does. The, the most. Yes. The, the most... Um, Yes. Thoroughly, or whatever the word is. Yes, it does do that. You know, where uh, yeah, if you're you you, eating you stay away mind from the, well, those stores because you don't. Yeah, if you're eating mindfully, you're really sensing the deliciousness of that food. It's just when you're present with it, there's just a gratitude and an astonishment, and your taste buds, and a favorite thing of mine. Um, on an all day is to be amazed at a hard-boiled egg and a banana, right? Because it's just, you know, you're, you're so fo focused. The smallest morsel of food feels amazing sometimes and sometimes not. But what we're also referring to is knowing when you're lost in desire and craving, mm -hmm. right? It's when I go to the cupcake place and I think I need four cupcakes of different icings and whatever it is they put in there, right? Because I'm craving, and I'm lost in that craving. I've lost myself in it. I'm all about getting something outside of me to make the situation better. 
I also thought the the trudge word. I want to go back. The reason why I love that trudge word is um, sometimes I get the image of walking a long path in the mud. You know, right? It's like sometimes it gets muddy, but if we stay on that path, if we trudge together, we reach that happy destiny. Yes. Um, I, I feel like when I um, am meditating sometimes, but even more, I try to do yoga, and I'm, I'm definitely very beginner at both. And, um, and a couple times in the middle of the night also when I was trying to make myself go back to sleep. But with the yoga, it's like I got hit with this like rebellion. Like, you know, and what he was saying about getting tired of doing the pebbles. Like, I have so many more important things to do. This is hurting me. I'm going to be... I mean, it was just like, ah grow stuff, you know, I felt like that, um, and I just thought maybe it would help from a beginner's um, experience, like how long does that last, am I supposed to just sit there, because I, I could tell it was like my inner critic, my taskless addiction just like flared, and it, it was triggered by yoga, it happened two times in a row, and I haven't done it again, yep, well, how long does that last? <laughs> So, if we're using, let's just say, this technique, right? And one of the things we can do is, with awareness, is to bring energy and interest, right? So, you could bring this technique of hearing. You're hearing the rebellion. You're hearing it. You're hearing it. You're feeling it. What does it feel like in your body when you're that pissed off and resentful? How does that feel in your body, right? just even noticing what some of the thoughts are. And sometimes by having more energy and interest and awareness, it can shift and you can pierce that. And sometimes you change your practice. You know, I mean, it's as simple as that, right? But very often, uh, something when you're bored of something, and I am certainly feel bored of a lot of tasks I don't like to do, they're unpleasant or boring, you can heighten your interest and your curiosity to notice what is bored actually. How does that feel in your body? What are the thoughts? What are the sensations? And then you can either widen your lens, seeing, um, I think mine is washing the dishes, my significant other will tell you that. Don't like it. Uh, <laughs> but you can widen your lens to see the dishes differently, the soap, the textures, you know, see out, right? Or you can wind it, narrow it in. Or you could just feel the sensations from moment to moment of water, soap, drying, the density, right? So you can use the practice to, to zoom in or zoom out. But if you can bring interest, curiosity, and energy, then... Uh, you have a chance to know more about the game you're in and not get lost in the boredom game. Yeah. Compassion. Hmm? Compassion. And that's, that's helped me stick with this for as long as it happened mm. through hard times. And that's something that's, you know, it's not always easy, never, not always fun. But it does, you know, at least in my practice, it has shifted. A foot cramp is no longer a catastrophe. <laughs> you know, that used to be, you know, I could not sit through that for the first three months, you know, just 
had to move, had to shift, and now it's just sort of, you can, I can watch my toes go, I can sense that it's uncomfortable, but I also know that it's only my foot. Mm-hmm. And that if I wait long enough, my toes will twitch and I'll go back. I mean, it's just, and so there's just a bunch, so, but, you know, but the critic is being kind about that. And, you know, being kind in this. So that's great what you're really pointing to is that compassion has been a doorway to equanimity. I don't have to. I'm still working on equanimity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think if you can sit through the foot cramp, that's equanimity, necessarily in that, right? So, so one will lead right into the other. Yeah. To have the balance. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.